food. Eat the food! Oh, gross. No thanks. Is that even food? What is that? Silent Breed is People, welcome to Conspiracy Guide. My name is Sean, and I will be your hungry, hungry conspiracy guide. I guess that was a spoiler without an alert, but you had 50 years to see that movie, so I apologize for nothing. Appropriately enough, that movie, Soylent Green, is set in 2022, and over these last 50 years since it's come out, We've gotten pretty close to the dystopian nightmare that they were uh, priming us for back in 1973, or maybe planning for us. But in any case, in that movie, uh, Soylent Green is their main source of food, and it's uh, provided to them by one giant mega corporation. And because of some uh, issues with the ocean, they're not able to make it out of plankton or whatever it was. So they start making it out of the bodies of dead people and as bad as it sounds we aren't actually that far off from this reality and it's not because of the uh, climate crisis they were planning for us or priming us for back then no it's because of our modern food our modern food is not good and I might actually argue that eating people would be a superior diet. That is, of course, if you're only eating organic and non-GMO people. But we all know how difficult it is to find non-genetically modified people these days, don't we? (laughs) Ouch. All right, but in all seriousness, our food situation, it is dire. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about food. So should we be eating, you know, processed food? food bars issued to us by the government or should we be eating the way god intended for us well i'm with the side of uh uh god um i'm on the side of god and and nature on this one but i think there are those who would have us eating soylent or or bugs or impossible slop or whatever human chow they decide for us useless eaters And food was the first topic that made me realize that conspiracy theories aren't just fringe fantasies. They're everywhere and they're hiding right in plain sight. I doubt we're going to get to many of them today, but I'll do my best. Now, please note that I'm not here to give medical or dietary advice. If you need that, please consult somebody who has legal indemnity because of their certifications, but not necessarily because of their merits on their advice, but really just get it from anyone but me. All right. So let's look around. Do, uh, do people seem healthy and fit? Do they seem happy? Um, do they even seem alert when I'm out at, uh, the grocery store or wherever these days, it feels like the NPC trope is becoming real. 
Now, NPC means non-playable character, and uh, in video games, it's essentially the characters that you can't interact with, and it's just a way to describe the, you know, asleep masses or the sheeple, if you will. And I don't know how this happened. Maybe people just got used to being locked in their homes and and being antisocial. Maybe they're just so divided politically that they can't possibly interact with somebody because, you know, fear that they might have different ideas. Maybe it's something worse. But it seems like people aren't firing on all cylinders. And it feels like something is changing. Now, it could be a lot of things, but one of the prime suspects, in my opinion is the food because food has a profound impact on us, obviously physically, but less obviously it has a psychological impact on us. And I have experienced this firsthand. I have done a lot of um, experiments with food on myself. And so I can vouch for uh, food's impact on my psyche. And when you consider the the volume of, of something like certain drugs, uh, for instance, a Tylenol, an extra strength Tylenol is 500 milligrams. There's a thousand milligrams in one gram. So one extra strength Tylenol is a half a gram and there's 453 grams in one pound. So it's about 900 extra strength Tylenols in a pound or at least active ingredient anyway. But Tylenol is a relatively large volume in the world of drugs. If you consider drugs like benzodiazepines, which uh, like Xanax, they have a profound effect at a dose less than one milligram. So a standard initial dose of Xanax is 0.25 or a quarter of a milligram. And then there's even drugs like fentanyl, and those are measured in micrograms. And a microgram is a millionth of a gram. So Imagine a millionth of a pinch of salt or a millionth of a big pinch of salt. That's how sensitive our bodies are at processing chemical inputs. And now consider the amount of food that the average person eats. It's about 2,000 pounds a year. So that's about six pounds a day or 2,700 grams a day or about 5,400 extra strength Tylenols. Now, obviously don't do that. That would be crazy and deadly. So um, yeah, don't do that. Don't, don't take any Tylenol. Consult the doctor, whatever. So pharmaceuticals are obviously chosen because they have these effects in very small doses. But I think we can see that the substances we take into our bodies have a profound effect, even at really small amounts. So it would be ridiculous of us to think otherwise about food, for us to think that food and its ingredients don't matter. Hippocrates is rumored to have said, let thy food be thy medicine. And considering the dose of food, I think that statement is correct, whether he said it or not. Um, He also created the Hippocratic Oath, And part of that oath says, I will use those dietary regimens, which will benefit my patients according to my greatest ability and judgment, and I will do no harm or injustice to them. Well, that's an oath that seems to be woefully forgotten these days. 
And although pharmaceuticals as we know them weren't around in Hippocrates' days, 2,500 years ago, he knew that what we ate was important. Food was medicine, and I think it still should be. As I had mentioned before, I was having some health problems, and it forced me to dive deeper into diet and nutrition. And I didn't solve these problems by going to a doctor and getting a bunch of pills. I changed the nutritional inputs for my body. And I tried a whole range of things. I went from basically a 100% vegan diet to a 100% red meat diet. I did this over the course of like four years from both ends of that spectrum. And it can be a difficult topic to research because the way people eat, it's not objective. It's pretty emotional. Much of our current understanding of food and diets, it's based more on religion and dogma and financial objectives or politics. And it has more to do with that than, than really the outcomes of, of the, you know, for the people who are eating it, you know, like their mental and physical health. But some of the confusion has to do with the fact that studying diets is really difficult because the data is sloppy. And at least currently, it's considered unethical to lock people, you know, uh, lock people up and control exactly what you feed them. Thank God. So most of the study data where food is concerned, or I should say where diets are concerned, it is self-reported survey studies, which aren't very accurate. Um, because reporting on what you eat can be difficult. I've tried it myself and what you think you ate and what you actually ate are pretty different. Essentially hard data is difficult to come by where diets are concerned. So I've found that you have to research the individual foods themselves. And I had to use myself as a test subject to just kind of figure out what worked for me. But along the way, I figured out that the topic of food is just filled with conspiracies and deliberate misinformation and all out deception. And I'm going to de detail some of those here. Much of this will require deeper dives later. But, you know, just in case you thought that food was something that we eat and it's kind of not subject to the same dastardly plans that the um, ruling elite have for us. Well, think again, because. Uh, I, I might uh, I might say that food is at the top of their, you know, pyramid or <laughs> the, the top of their um, their ideas for us. Today, I want to talk about food generally, not so much diets. And I thought about how to do this, and I think the best way to do it is to take you on an imaginary shopping trip. So here in the U.S., nine out of ten times when you enter a grocery store, it's going to be in the produce section and that's absolutely by design. It's colorful. It's fragrant. It lulls you into a false sense of farminess. It's nature on display and our gatherer instincts are tricked or uh, maybe deceptively so, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe the store just wants to sell more fruit. Who knows? But now you may notice that amongst all this natural beauty, there are, two sections and one of them is marked organic and the other is not marked at all, but, uh, but it's pretty and colorful nonetheless. So 
Here in the U.S., according to our USDA, organic generally means not grown with pesticides, synthetic fertilizers, raw sewage, um, genetically modified organisms, or ionizing radiation. <laughs> so, so I guess you have to pay double to not get those things. Now, one of those pesticides is glyphosate, which is Roundup. And um, it's the most commonly applied pesticide in the U.S. It's the same stuff you can buy at Home Depot. And farmers use a ton of this stuff. We produce and use over 200 million pounds of this shit every single year. And it's an herbicide and it's a desiccant. And I'll explain what those are. But an herbicide... um, you know, it's used to kind of prepare fields by just killing everything that's there before planting. Um, it's used after crops are planted sort of as a discriminant, you know, killer of the undesirable plants. And then it's also sprayed indiscriminately or completely over Roundup Ready crops. And Roundup Ready crops are seeds that have been genetically modified to withstand the glyphosate spraying. So because of this Frankencrop, you know, engineered mutation, the weeds die and not your food. So as a desiccant, a desiccant means that they, they use the glyphosate and they'll, they'll spray it on crops like wheat and they'll spray it over the entire crop and it's meant to kill the plant. So the, the wheat needs to be harvested when it's basically dead, like when it's crispy. So they spray the, uh, glyphosate over the entire thing and kill the whole crop at once. And that's why they do it. They do it to, uh, essentially bring the crop to harvest all at one time. So, you know, what's a little glyphosate between friends? Well, actually a lot. Um, at this point, glyphosate is, is a known carcinogen and well, okay. It's a known carcinogen, but of course it's not to the EPA because you know, they think it's just fine. It's been linked to kidney damage. It's been linked to liver damage. It's been linked to reproductive and developmental issues, but don't worry because the EPA is also cool with that. They don't think there's any problems there. They also don't have a problem with it uh, being in mother's breast milk in trace amounts. So, you know, no problem there, nothing to see. And maybe you be, you think I'm being hyperbolic about the, the effects of this glyphosate, but some of the scientific and economic powerhouses of this world, like Tongo and Vietnam and Kuwait and Mexico and about 20 other countries have already banned it. But for some reason, our health regulators just can't seem to find any evidence of harm. Isn't that strange? I mean, there's actually all these hilarious videos you can watch about um, uh, glyphosate kind of salespeople or lobbyists telling us how harmless glyphosate is. And then somebody offers them like a glass full of it because they're like, no, it's completely non-toxic. It's totally safe. And then somebody will say, well, here's a glass of glyphosate. Will you drink it? And of course they don't. They know it's dangerous. Of course, they're not going to do it. But not to worry, because glyphosate is made by Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer. And 
you know, Bayer makes drugs. They make things that help us. It's not like they would do anything to hurt us, right? I mean, it's not like they would say ship HIV infected blood products to Asia or South America because they couldn't sell them here. Right. I mean, right. <laughs> Except nope, nope. They actually did that. They knowingly sent HIV infected AHF, which is a hemophiliac treatment. They knowingly sent it out of the country because they couldn't sell it here, even though they knew it was infected with HIV. Because I guess we just can't have all those profits going to waste, right? I mean, we made all this stuff. We got to sell it. So forgive me if I don't want to trust my health and well-being to a company that would do that. Now, in addition to glyphosate, we also produce and use millions of pounds of atrazine and 2,4-D which are also carcinogens. And, and, and also, atrazine will literally shrink your balls. Yes, I said that right. It, testicular atrophy is one of the effects of atrazine. It is chemical castration, and it's been proven in laboratory models. But don't worry, because <laughs> the FDA says it's good, says it's fine. So stop being a conspiracy theorist. And, and this is by no means an exhaustive list of the uh, pesticides or chemicals they spray on these plants. Um, I, I could add neonicotinoids, which seem to be killing all the bees, but, you know, it's not like we need bees or anything, right? Woo! All right, we just stepped in the store. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even get to sewage sludge or ionizing radiation of the produce, but maybe next time we... We got to get going. So the way the the stores are most commonly laid out here in, in the U.S. is that they put all the kind of loss leader type things, the perishable items around the perimeter. And um, that, that I, mean, I don't know, maybe that's meant to to make you feel like you're you're in some kind of, you know, open um, market. You visit each <laughs> department, I don't know, to get your meats and cheeses and bread and whatnot. But Anyway, I have heard people say you should eat the perimeter, and I actually think that's pretty good advice because if your food doesn't go bad, then it's probably not really food. So anyway, let's continue around this perimeter. So we find ourselves in the dairy section, and they're really looking out for us here because all the milk products here are pasteurized. Yeah, they, they've, they've gone ahead and heated it. Um, to a high enough level to kill all those pesky organisms that the cow produced. Except, why would that asshole cow produce these little monsters anyway? Why wouldn't they just make us some sugar water with a little fat in it? It's almost like those cows are trying to kill us, right? But, let's look. So, according to the FDA, drinking raw milk, or milk that hasn't been pasteurized, it poses a, quote, serious health risk. And listed on their website, there's a whole slew of cases every year. Yeah, that's right, cases. Hmm, where have I heard that one before? It's as if we have a case-demic of raw milk. But uh, but one thing that's absent from their website is uh, is deaths. That's right, they don't associate any deaths to raw milk. Zero deaths. However, 
on that same FDA website in the debunking section for raw milk, it claims, quote, pasteurization does save lives and does is in all caps. So pasteurization does save lives. Um, that is in the debunking section. So I don't know what they're talking. I don't know which lives they're talking about because they haven't stated anywhere on that page that raw milk takes any lives. So I have my doubts. Now, as far as the cases go, they report a 144 hospitalizations a year. That's right. 144. You've got to be kidding me. 144 in our population is a rounding error. Now, to put that into perspective, there's about 3,000 people a year who end up in the hospital with foreign objects stuck in their ass. So, you know, if mitigation of risk is your ultimate life goal, well, let's just say there are other things you could do besides avoiding raw milk. I know, I know. You're probably saying, Sean, that's a straw man argument because more people stick things up their butt than drink raw milk. And you know what? You may be right. Admittedly, I, I don't have those stats in front of me, but, but let me move on. Um, be, all right. One more, because this topic bugs me so much. Um, I, I just have to explain how they come to these 144 cases, which by the way, my tinfoil hat mind tells me, huh, 144 cases is evenly divisible by 12 months. Could they be just making that stat up? I don't know. But anyway, the way they say they come about these stats is, um, it, let me lay out the scenario for you. Basically, somebody goes to the hospital with a belly ache, and the nurse says, well, what did you eat today? And the patient probably says something like, oh, it was a normal breakfast. I had, you know, Prozac and a McGriddle, uh, you know, bag of Sour Patch Kids for lunch or whatever. And the nurse is like, oh, did you have anything else? Did you have anything to drink? And that person may say, oh, yeah, I had some milk. And was it raw? Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And then bingo, they've got a case. That's how they come to their, that's how they come to their uh, cases. The, uh, the invisible bugs got another one. <laughs> Put it on the list. <laughs> anyway. I'm just a lowly conspiracy theorist, but if you ask me, I would think those bacteria and those organisms that are in the milk, I would say that they're there for a reason. So whether you believe in uh, God's design or just evolutionary chance, you know, it wouldn't seem possible to me that all those years, all mammal babies were just playing Russian roulette by drinking milk from their mothers. You know, that is until we human geniuses stepped in and started messing with God's design, right? I mean, does any of that make sense? Uh, yeah, you could probably produce some, you know, bad milk by mistreating cows. I know during Pasteur's day, which is where we get pasteurization from, you know, they were feeding cows like byproducts from paper mills and stuff like that. But there you go. Just don't buy your milk from people who are abusing cows. You know, also there's a rapidly growing body of evidence that says that our gut flora, you know, the bacteria that's inside of us, inside our gut, well, it's not just important, but it's probably the key to our health. And these days that gut flora is really under attack by, by things like pesticides, like glyphosate and atrazine and, you know, all the other chemicals we're consuming. So I would think that consuming live beneficial bacteria would be a good thing. So 
that's my two cents, kind of a rant, but that's how I feel about raw milk. All right, so we're still here in the dairy section, and this next one's going to get kind of gross, so you might want to put away your, like, you know, gogurt squeeze pack for this one. All right, commercially produced milk has very high levels of estrogen in it because they milk pregnant cows. See, cows are not milked by the milkmaid anymore, despite the label that you might see on the carton that shows that. Now they get milked by something that looks right out of an H.R. Geiger illustration. Also, these cows are called, quote, genetically improved cows. So part of that improvement is that they produce milk throughout pregnancy. It's disgusting, I know. So during this time, while they're pregnant, their milk contains high levels of estrogen and progesterone in it. And that milk from those pregnant cows gets milk mixed in with all the other milk. And we end up with a highly hormonal milk cocktail. And so in 2009, a study of of, um, commercial milk took male subjects and they were given uh, just regular commercial milk. And they had their testosterone, quote, significantly reduced. And... Uh, Later on in the study, it it also states, quote, that sexual maturation of children could be affected by ordinary intake of cow's milk. That's right. Commercially produced milk can act as a literal hormone blocker for kids. We all know how popular that is these days, don't we? You know, Alex Jones was concerned about a uh, couple of uh, frogs being made gay, but Really, what is commercial milk doing to us? Um, did you know that testosterone has been dropping in men at 1% a year since 1982? Well, I just happened to be born in 1982, so the math is easy for me. That's 40, but it's actually not 40%. It's 50% because it is um, actually compounding. So it's actually 50% and, uh, you know, that's half. That's half. So you know what else is down by half and actually more than half is sperm counts. They're down by 60%. Um, The largest study ever conducted showed that men's sperm counts are down by 60%. And it's largely because of these um, exogenous hormones that, that we're taking, like those found in this commercially produced milk. And is that concerning to anyone? I don't know. Would it be concerning if you lost 50% of your eyesight? I mean, how about if you lost 60% of your IQ? I guess 60% or 50% of testosterone and sperm, I guess those don't matter. It's just the quintessential uh, male hormone as as well as uh, sperm, which, you know, propagates our species. And, and maybe commercial milk is a factor there. I don't really know. It seems like it certainly could be. But uh, if I was a betting man, I would I would guess that the FDA is not concerned about this one either. Um, You know, maybe maybe it's because testosterone creates all that toxic masculinity that makes strong men so difficult to control and probably, you know, problematic for those who would wish wish to rule over us. Um, I mean, you can't really control a bunch of giga chads now, can you? 
and and you're never going to see like some some strong dudes, you know, hanging out with their kids at the family friendly drag show. That's that's not going to happen. And all you're going to see there are Karen's and the soy boy cucks or <laughs> maybe they're commercial cucks. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, on on soy, don't drink that either. And soy is also going to give you bitch tits. So don't drink that stuff. It's off the charts where estrogen is concerned. In fact, when they test soy products for estrogen, they actually have to recalibrate the machines because when they test it, it's orders of magnitude higher than the trace amounts of estrogens they find in other, in other things. So don't buy that stuff. Don't drink soy milk. Oh, geez. All right. That's enough milk. We got to get out of here. Moving on. We continue around the perimeter of the store. But we just can't catch a break, can we? Because here we are in the meat department. And don't you know that meat, red meat, causes cancer and heart disease and heart attacks? And and also, you know, those cow farts, they're, they're going to melt the ice caps just like Al Gore warned us about. I think we need to examine these claims individually. There are situations where clear evidence is present in a data set. And cigarettes and lung cancer are one such example of that. And we saw how the cigarette industry was able to suppress all that data for decades while people just kept smoking themselves right into an early grave. But so the claims of red meat and cancer they're not clear at all in the studies and the vast majority of the well-designed studies consistently show results that aren't even statistically significant. So when accounting for these small, but sometimes present findings, we also need to factor in something called the healthy user bias. So the bias, the healthy user bias Um, it can essentially ruin an epidemiological data set because studies of meat consumption are not only accounting for meat because people eat a bunch of different stuff. So if you're a health conscious person and you've been paying attention to the prevailing, you know, public health wisdom for the past half century, you know, whether it's correct or not, um, you might be eating less meat because that's what we've been told, but you're probably doing a bunch of other things that also affect your health in a positive way, hence the healthy user bias. So we can see how, you know, a guy who never works out and maybe smokes cigarettes and eats McDonald's cheeseburgers with, you know, French fries and soda, well, that guy might get cancer. And Because these epidemiological surveys are only looking for meat frequency and not much else about the lifestyle of the individual, they really don't say anything about cancer causality or meat's involvement in that. And that's why they constantly show almost no link anyway. So that claim, as far as I'm concerned, is completely debunked and You really should look farther than the headline when you see something claiming that red meat causes cancer. 
Now, the next claim about uh, red meat is heart disease, and this largely stems from cholesterol. Now, we know about cholesterol, right? We know it's going to stop your heart and send you right to your maker because that's just science, right? But really, what is cholesterol? So cholesterol is a hormone, or really it's a precursor to hormone production, but in any case, your body can't produce cholesterol, or I should say, Your body can't produce hormones without cholesterol. So we need it because we need to produce hormones. See, our hormones just can't catch a break these days. The the claims of heart disease and cholesterol, they are based on the false premise that dietary cholesterol um, leads to increased blood or serum levels of cholesterol, which then cause heart disease. But... Dietary cholesterol has really no uh, link or um, it has no bearing on your serum cholesterol levels. We produce cholesterol in our bodies. And so anyway, that link isn't clearly established. But did you know that in 2015, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans called the DGA, which is published by the USDA and HHS, well, they quietly removed cholesterol as a, quote, nutrient of concern. Did you get the memo? No, I I didn't get the memo. I I didn't, I mean, I found out about it, but uh, nobody notified me. Um, I guess I was listening to crazy conspiracy theorists to find that one. But um, despite that um, uh, removal of cholesterol as a nutrient of concern. There are people out there who are still claiming that eggs are like cigarettes. It's completely preposterous. So our public health agencies waged an all out war on cholesterol and heart disease for 60 years. And when they finally admit that their advice was wrong, well, they didn't tell anyone about it. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if it has anything to do with the $15 billion a year cholesterol-lowering pharma cash cow that is statin drugs. I have my suspicions. Oh, and on those statin drugs, yep, they they reduce your testosterone in men and women. I guess consult your doctor on that one, too. All right. The last one, the last, uh, the last claim about meat is the cow farts. And do I dare even dignify this one with a response? Let me just do it real quick. Um, those, uh, claims come from, uh, methane being in the cow's farts or the cow's burps really. But when they make these models, what they do is they project them out over a hundred years. And what they fail to take into consideration is the half-life of these gases in the environment. So, the half-life of methane is uh, fairly volatile as far as these greenhouse gases are concerned or quote greenhouse gases. It's something like nine years and then CO2 is like five times that. So just by halving, um, you can see that methane uh, doesn't deserve the same kind of treatment that it gets as CO2. But I mean, even more than that, let's, let's just consider for a minute that uh, megafauna animals like cows and, and buffaloes, which used to be in far larger amounts roaming the plains. I mean, these things have always been farting and burping, right? And um, 
They haven't melted the ice caps yet. So to think that these cows are going to fart our way into, you know, global destruction. I mean, it's just a level of stupid that I, I really, I, I can't comprehend. So anyway, all right. Uh, let's leave the meat section and, and the outlook is pretty bleak so far. I mean, we haven't even made it out of the perimeter of the, you know, the healthy section. So do we dare venture into the uh, highly processed and preservative laced shelf stable middle of the store? Well, for the the sake of your attention and and my voice, um, we're only going to make one more stop uh, on our way out of the store. And I think we'll stop on the soda aisle. And certainly, uh, we're not going to grab any of that liquid sugar, instant glucose explosion, regular soda. No, we're going to we're going to get some diet soda because after all, diets are healthy, right? Uh, mm. Well, the artificial sweetener in most diet sodas is aspartame. And we can thank none other than Donald Rumsfeld for this modern day sweet miracle. That's right. Donald $2.3 trillion Rumsfeld, the longtime secretary of defense is the reason why we have aspartame sweetener in our sodas today. Aspartame in the seventies had a long history of showing ill health effects in the animal models. So it was everything from cancer to developmental issues in the mice and rats And the company that owned aspartame was called G.D. Searle. And they just couldn't get it approved. No matter how much they fudged their safety studies, they just could not get Congress to approve it. So what did G.D. Searle do? Well, they hired Donald Rumsfeld to be the CEO. Now, is this because Donnie was such a great scientific mind that he could finally show Congress how safe the product was? No, of course not. It's because Donald Rumsfeld had a long history in Congress and he could use his political might to push a dangerous chemical through to approval. And he did this partly by having an FDA commissioner replaced when Reagan took over. See, Rummy was a Republican and so was Reagan, who was the homie. So, you know, who knows? I I guess it was just hooking a brother up. But um that's the condensed version. If you want to read the full story, I'll, I'll, I'll link to something about it uh, in the comments for this one. But the point is, the next time you reach for one of those diet sodas, just remember that the same guy who was selling weapons of mass destruction, a lie that led to the deaths of over a million people. Well, that's the same guy who's responsible for selling you aspartame sweetener. Yeah, he doesn't seem concerned with the safety of the policy that he advocated for. So I guess next time, think twice before you reach for that Diet Coke. It must be good, though, if it's that dangerous. Because uh, it's making me want one right now. It is good. It's delicious. (laughs) Shouldn't drink it. All right. So in my first episode, I said that the elites, the ruling class, they want you fat sick and confused. And I stand by that statement. I mean, does it sound like our intrepid public health agencies 
have your best interest at heart? Does it? I mean, are they just getting all this stuff wrong by accident? I don't know. You be the judge. I could be just some unhinged conspiracy theorist after all. But you know what? What's the point of being a conspiracy theorist if we aren't going to do anything about it? So I want to be solutionary and I have thought about it and prepared a list of eating principles that I follow that have nothing to do with the actual food itself. So, um, again, (laughs) not health or dietary advice, but here we go. Here's the things I do. One, don't listen to public health agencies. These organizations are just bought and paid for PR, uh, PR departments of the food conglomerates. You might as well take your health advice from food industry lobbyists. They may have started out good, but, um, they've really just fallen to regulatory capture. We've seen this in all kinds of market sectors. It's not just food. So where public health is concerned, just go ahead and, um, you know, disregard that advice. Number two is eat mindfully. And this might sound weird, but just think about the food that you're eating. And it has a profound impact on what actually goes in your body if you just think about the food. Now, I had a friend tell me a while back while we were lifting weights, he told me to just think about the muscle that I was using while I was lifting. And it seemed really weird, but I started to do it. And it works really well. And I think that it's a simple principle that works for a lot of aspects of life. So just eat mindfully. Just think about what you're eating. And I think it'll help. The next one is eat simply. So where ingredients are concerned, less is more. Where processing is concerned, less is more. And where packaging is concerned, less is more. So number three, just eat simply. Number four, buy your food from somebody local. Support a local farm or a food co-op. The giant food conglomerates have failed us. So vote with your dollars and support somebody who is doing something for the good of the community. And then last, this one kind of has to do with the food itself, but it's more a principle. Number five, just eat food that's nutrient-dense. Not calorically dense, nutrient-dense. So where nutrients are concerned, more is more. Things like white bread and white rice and white flour, <laughs> the the evil whites, if you will, <laughs> um, those are super calorically dense, but if they didn't fortify them artificially with vitamins, well, they wouldn't have any uh, nutrients in them at all. So essentially they're survival foods that will provide you some calories, but they're not going to do anything for your health. So think naturally raised meats and produce and just try to keep nutrient density in mind. So there you go. That's the start. Those are my uh, food recommendations or food principles. Again, don't follow them. (laughs) Don't follow them. (laughs) Get them from a medical expert. Get your food advice from anyone but me. (laughs) But all right. So food is a big topic and um, we only scratched the surface. So there is going to be more about food later. And lest you think I cherry picked these items just to scare you about our food situation or something. um, I only got through a couple of the 25 that I had on my list. 
So, you know, I don't lay out the stores. I, it's not my fault the grocery store is arranged that way. But anyway, there's a lot more there. We're going to get through a bunch of that. Um, hopefully this created some awareness so you can, you know, take a few steps and kind of avoid some of the pitfalls of the modern food industrial complex. As I said in the first episode, when I was laying out what this podcast would be, I want to recommend some books. I want to recommend some reading so that if you're interested, you can actually understand these topics, uh, better. And, these books aren't necessarily about what we talked about today, but these were the books that got me started. These were some of the books that uh, really influenced the way I started to think about food. The first book here is The Omnivore's Dilemma. It's by Michael Pollan, and this is the very first book, period, that I read about food. And Michael Pollan is a really good, really good author. He writes books that are fun to read. This particular book, he takes you through the journey of three meals and kind of what it takes to get them and, and their their impact. And it, it is a really good, I guess, thought exercise in food. So I would highly recommend it. And it's a very uh, pun intended, digestible read. So I really like that book. That's the one I would start with. That's the one I did start with. The next one is called The Dorito Effect. And that book is by Mark Schatzker. And it's a very interesting book if you're interested in like food science and how our food is created because our modern food is a is an engineered product that's meant to be hyper palatable so that we'll eat more of it and so that we'll spend more money on it essentially. And the farm type foods like uh, uh, meats and vegetables, they don't much resemble what they used to be. And this book explains all of that. I actually gave away my copy and I just rebought this one. And I thought it was, I, I thought when I got it, it would be like 50 pages long because I remember reading this thing in what feels like a weekend. It's a, it's a really exciting and interesting read. At least I thought so. Um, so if you're interested in that stuff, if you're interested about all the Franken food we eat, this is a great place to start the Dorito effect. The last book is called Countdown. And I mentioned a lot of the hormone, uh, the the uh, testosterone and sperm stuff in this podcast. And a lot of that stuff came from this book. I didn't necessarily find it to be an interesting or exciting read, but a lot of these um, facts and statistics were presented in this book and it's by Shanna Swan PhD. So, you know, it's good. And she lays out, you know, a bunch of, uh, pretty good arguments for why we should be concerned about, uh, testosterone and sperm and all that. Albeit, you know, she lays it out through a lens of kind of wokeness. Uh, she also mentions how she thinks that, like Al Gore is doing the Lord's work with, with inconvenient truth. So, um, anyway, she's no conspiracy theorist. Maybe she is a conspiracy theorist. Uh, if you think Al Gore is saving the world, then you're a conspiracy theorist in my book. But anyway, if you're interested in, in those topics, um, you might want to check out that book for, for some of those, 
Anyway, I'll put links to those in the description of the show and they're affiliate links. So if you just click on those and buy them, I get some pittance for uh, doing the search for you. Anyway, thanks for listening today. I hope you got something out of this. As always, please let us know what you think. And until next time, love, peace, and chicken grease. 